1: Happy Price. Got your Happy Price price
2: line. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover, and you know, we all trust technology far too much. We know that humans are fallible, screwed-up animals, but somehow we've all come to believe that once something's done with an algorithm or a satellite or if math is involved, then that means it must be accurate, neutral, and unquestionable. You know, we might not know what machine learning actually is, but hey, it's got machine right there in the name, right? So uh, that means it must work, and blockchain, I don't even know what it is, but that's not going to stop me from shoving all my money into it. We've all come to believe that the mere presence of complex math assures accuracy and that technology has an authority that we should respect, if not obey. But the truth is that technology, the end of the day, isn't just made by fallible humans, it's also used by fallible humans, us. And the mistake, the foul, if you will, that we're all making is that we trust technology far too much. Take fitness trackers, like your Fitbit. Fitbits use sensors to calculate the distance you travel, count your steps, the calories you burn, and even how well you sleep. They take info about that activity, and they spit out graphs and charts on your phone. And those graphs and charts make it seem very authoritative and accurate, right? I mean, hell, this thing said I ran 3.26 miles. Look at those decimal places. But the fact that it's able to spit out a number like that doesn't actually mean the number is accurate. A 2018 meta-analysis that looked at 67 different studies found that Fitbit devices accurately counted steps only half of the time. And other studies show that fitness tracker estimates for calories burned are all over the place and that tracking your sleep could actually make your insomnia worse. You know, I've even heard of Fitbit wearers who run a marathon and then complain to the organizer that the course is wrong because their Fitbit said it was a different distance. Uh, no, maybe your Fitbit just sucks ass, all right? People are literally trusting the $70 piece of plastic on their wrists over the professional race organizers who laid the thing out with measuring tape. It's ridiculous. Or... Take GPSs. You know, I think we've all been in the car with a driver who's insisted on following the GPS directions, even though they were clearly wrong. Well, sometimes this can lead to absurd and dangerous results. In 2008, in England, a woman following her satellite navigation ignored a number of road warnings and then drove her Mercedes straight into a river. Don't worry, she was fine. Her Mercedes, sadly, though, passed on. And this last year, following a mudslide in Colorado, Google Maps suggested a detour that stranded dozens of drivers on a dirt road that had turned to mud. The app could calculate a route, but apparently it couldn't check the weather. And our overconfidence in our own technology can even be fatal. Take self-driving cars. Just because a Tesla can stay in a lane on its own doesn't mean it can necessarily stop on its own. At least two drivers using Tesla's autopilot feature have crashed into trucks obstructing the road in Florida and died. And at least some observers of the industry believe that part of the problem in those cases is that the drivers were led, whether by Tesla's marketing or their own wishful thinking, to trust the autopilot feature too much and to believe that it had more self-driving ability than it actually did. The truth is that as clean and clinical as computer code is, using it does not make real human problems any less messy and complicated. The residue of our dysfunction and our biases do not disappear when they get transferred into code. Those biases just get code-washed, expressed through a technological system rather than a social one, and this can have shocking and sometimes quite disastrous results. Our guest today is an expert on how tech, and Google specifically, reinforces those biases. Sophia Noble is an associate professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, and the author of Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Before we get to that interview, though, I just want to remind you of an upcoming tour date. On January 30th, I will be doing an hour of comedy at the Irvine Improv in California. If you live in SoCal and you don't like driving to L.A., I hope you come check it out. That's January 30th. And now... Here's my interview with Sophia Noble. Sophia, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So, you're a professor at UCLA. I am. You're a critic of the tech industry. I am. And you study what exactly?
1: I study the way that racism and sexism are deeply embedded in digital technologies, especially search engines. But I look at the way in which other things like artificial intelligence, algorithms, uh, broadly, these kinds of new technologies, predictive technologies that we use are harming vulnerable communities.
2: So let's unpack that first one, because I'm sure some people listening will say well, racism in a search engine. What is this kind of projecting that you're, that's like saying algebra is racist, right? It's like, well, this is just a neutral mathematical process. How could there be racism? This is, uh, we've got the, uh, oh, it's infecting the, the academia now. You we, we hear that whole, I hear that guy yelling in my head. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so, um, unpack, uh, that idea a little bit bit for us. You got it. All right. So
1: for sure, there are a lot of people who think that digital technologies or anything that's driven by code is purely math. And, you know, let's just upfront say that's like reducing human beings to just cells. Mm. It's really, you know, yeah, that's one way you can cut in on something like computer code and software and what software engineers do. It is math. Yeah. Yeah, it is math. But That's not the point. The point is the way that a whole human being system works and engages with its environment. And when you look at something like a search engine, search engines are really, quite frankly, advertising platforms, full Mm. stop.
0: Mm -hmm. So if
1: it's an advertising platform, then you know that the number one uh, imperative in that uh, platform is money. Yeah, And money is going to determine and shape all kinds of things, like what shows up on the first page of a Mm. search result. So the first thing I try to do in my work is just explain to people that when you go do a Google search, you're not doing fact checking, you're not going to some type of credible arbiter that's... Uh, gone through all the paces to figure out if what's showing up at the top is the most credible or reliable. You're looking at content that's been deeply optimized to the benefit, the profit uh, imperative of Google. That's the first thing you've got to get.
2: Yeah, and to and to broaden that out a little bit, like. OK, it is math uh, at the at root, right? But it's math that's been created by people and sculpted by people to, and an organization to serve a particular purpose.
1: Absolutely. To make certain kinds of things uh, more viable. So when I talk about racism and sexism being prevalent in search engines, what I'm talking about is that uh, racism and sexism are actually super profitable in our country Mm. and around the world. So when I started my study Mm. several years ago, almost a decade ago now, I was looking at things like, um, what happens when you do searches on different kinds of women and girls' identities? And it was interesting how overwhelmingly when you did any kind of search on the keyword girls, especially when you put an ethnic identity marker with it, black girls, Latina girls, Asian girls, uh, it was almost exclusively pornography mm. and hypersexualized content that yeah. you got back. Why? Because yeah. porn sells and sex sells, and um, no one had any particular regard for the fact that maybe Asian girls and Black girls and Latina girls didn't want to be represented by pornography or the that they were page.
2: using the search engine.
1: Right. <laughs> I, I mean, how dare they? How dare they?
2: Like, oh, I'd like to. Like, who wants to meet? Maybe, maybe a Latina girl is like wants to meet some Latina girls.
1: Maybe I want to or check see some out, pictures. Yeah. Like what's <laughs> happening with Black girls' hairstyles right now? Yeah.
2: Oh, ooh, ooh, whoa! That's not it. That's not it. Yeah, I see that. I see that point. Is that, that's how you. Is that how you came to the work?
1: Yeah, that's how I came to the work. I had spent 15 years in advertising and marketing. Really? Before, yeah. So I knew a lot about you know advertising. the business. I knew the business, uh, both from the client side and the ad agency side. And as I was leaving the ad industry. We were just starting to hire programmers to come in and get this straight up help us game the system to get our clients' products and services to the first page of search engines. Right. Right? I mean, we knew what the deal was that we were we were writing copy in the in the public relations departments. Um, to figure out how it could look kind of like yeah. advertorial, right? It's like search
2: engine optimization. That's yeah, the oldest trick up, in the book. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, this was like the early days of that. So it was shocking to me when I left the industry and I went back to grad school, mostly to atone for my sins of having worked in <laughs> advertising. It's fine, leave it. Um, that's when I saw how many people in academia and the public. We're thinking of this new company, Google, as like the people's public library. Yeah, that's how they're
2: presented themselves.
1: Totally. They're like, we're, you know, like the people's information portal. We're going
2: to make all human knowledge accessible was their mission statement, something like that. Yeah,
1: that's right. Organizing all the world's knowledge and like in parentheses in English. So then, you know, that's like weird, right? Because that's actually not the whole world's knowledge. But, you know, it's fine right? if you want to just be specific.
2: It's a good point that it's like, uh, it's it's almost like the SAT. Like people treat the SAT like, or the the illusion of the SAT is like, oh, this is completely neutral. And it's just a way of evaluating everyone as a blank slate. But in reality, like the rich kids are paying to get test prep for the SAT. And so they're able to game the system. That's exactly, that's one example of like what, porn companies are able to do or any company with money is able to like pay money and to get themselves well positioned on Google. And then sometimes Google pushes back and says, okay, we're not going to allow that kind of SEO anymore. And it's like a cat and mouse game, but like it's how it, that's like a huge part of Google. So, let me, let me try to guess what your argument is. Is that okay? Or to, to instill it. Is that like, all right, If once you're looking at Google that way, it's a search engine with an algorithm that's made by people in order to advance Google's business interests. Hey, why is YouTube always on the top? Because Google owns YouTube. Yep. Vimeo is never as highly ranked. So never. maybe something's going on there. Also, there's a whole advertising system. And then there's a whole system of people who are paying money in order to get their content on Google. So now we're not talking about math anymore. Now we're talking about a giant human system made up of people with competing values and incentives and abilities and their money and all that going together sounds a lot like the rest of human society in which, you know, it exists racism and sexism and other forms of discrimination. And so, of course, those are going to exist in the in now in the whole edifice of what we're now calling Google.
1: Yeah, it's really true. That's exactly what's happening. But here's the the kicker. Uh when you start taking racism and sexism into something like a search engine or a platform like YouTube or other digital media platforms and social media, Facebook, and so forth, now you're amplifying that racism mm. to scale to global scale. Mm-hmm. So see, in in the old days, let's say, of regular racism. <laughs> the good old days of in the, racism. In the good old days of regular racism. <laughs> old fashioned You were just an asshole and I couldn't stand you and maybe you blocked me from getting a job.
2: Artisanal racism.
1: Crap. It's a homemade. Exactly. Um, you had to do it person by person. It was the slow movement of racism, right? You'd be racist to
2: your face. You'd have an interaction with a racist. I'm would. sorry.
1: You know, and then you could also take that racist to court. Let's yeah. Let's say if they blocked you from a job. Yeah. Or they uh, denied you admissions to a university based on your skin color. Mm-hmm. All these things, right? There were many mechanisms. Some of them. Uh, more effective than others, not all f- mm-hmm. foolproof. But now when you start talking about amplifying racism and sexism and homophobia at scale, you guess what? Mm-hmm. You can't take that algorithm to court. You can't – what do you do when the algorithm is optimizing for uh, the call for genocide of your people like the Rohingya, right, yeah. which is what's happened in Facebook? So what yeah. are you doing we, now? The
2: the UN said that Facebook had a role in the Rohingya genocide in Myanmar. Go look that up if you missed the articles about that about a year ago. But like it – dangerous misinformation being spread about that minority in Facebook face, and, uh, and it resulted in the deaths of – many. many. Many, many people.
1: That's right. That's right. So this is the kind of thing that I'm concerned with is how does this amplification through these algorithmic practices harm people? And uh, what what are we going to do in terms of our lack of public policy, not Mm -hmm. just in the United States, but really globally, to push back on these companies who – basically can spread disinformation, harmful propaganda without consequence. Yeah. Right. And I think about it this way. You know, if um, three guys rented some space in a strip mall and started building their chemical operation and they uh, cooked up some drugs, let's say. Right. And then packaged it up neatly and, and rolled it out at CVS and Wal- Walgreens on the yeah. weekend. Um, that would never go down. Yeah. But here we have uh, three guys who can rent some space and uh, and become software engineers and roll out predictive analytics and sell it right. to cities and states and governments. And next thing you know, it's uh, a racial profiling uh, system that is sold to uh, all kinds of people that, That's not huge implications That's not hypothetical That's I mean, not hypothetical st-
2: Startup culture there are startups that are selling algorithmic tools to law enforcement c- cities around the country You bet that's Palantir exactly. and companies like that
1: Palantir you know I'm thinking about Compass and um, they're our recidivism prediction software that they sold in Florida. And, you know, Jeff Larson and Julia Engwin did this amazing work uh, for ProPublica a couple of years ago about how um, these – uh, criminal sentencing softwares, in fact, were racially profiling and mm-hmm. predicting African-Americans to be four times more likely to be uh, uh, a threat to society, right?
0: Wow. And
1: you're talking about letting out white mass murderers, people who are violent offenders, and then locking up a uh, you know, young teenage African-American girl because she borrowed the bike of the neighbor without yeah. permission. You see yeah. what I'm saying? She should go to prison. And the dude who's like... Yeah. I'm fully committed to violent crime for the rest of my life.
2: This is in the ProPublica piece? Yeah, this is in the ProPublica
1: piece. So, you know, when they did their uh, research on what was happening with that software, it was amazing. They found it was a a few guys in a strip mall who'd worked on this software. And when they brought (laughs) all the evidence and they were like, hey... see what you do here? Let let us show you the 15,000 cases we went through and how your software is actually racially profiling. They were in total denial because what? It's just math. Yeah. And then they finally had to come to terms with the results. And I'm sitting here thinking... See, we would never let the the chemists roll out some drugs. Right. Hey, it's just hey, chemicals. It's, it's Just chemicals, <laughs> it's just chemistry, yo. What's wrong with no, you? No, but
2: you put the chemicals together, so you're responsible In a way for the result of them. Killing yeah. people, right? Yeah. Or
1: harming people or hospitalizing people or causing all of this harm. And it's interesting to me how the tax sector evades all kind of oversight mm-hmm. in that way for their products yeah. in ways that other industries, you know, we would never let them get away with that. Yeah.
2: And now they're getting to. So we're we're starting to have a moment where the oversight is coming. Right. California just passed a big data privacy law. You can imagine that. Uh, not, if not this administration, the next administration will start to see, you know, maybe we'll see a federal law, right? For the first time, maybe we'll see our America's GDPR kind of law. Um, But at the same time, you're starting to see companies like Facebook and Google get ahead of it and say, you know, we want regulation. And here's what the regulation should be. That's right. (laughs) Setting the terms. I mean, it's like
1: the fox guarding the hen house. Um, It reminds me of when the fossil fuel industry was like, we got you guys, we got it. We're going to set their regulatory framework mm-hmm. for fossil fuels. But see, now um, there are parts of the world that are, that are uninhabitable from yeah. global warming. Yeah. So I think we have a lot at stake here, um, you know, in, in, including the fact that when we think about a whole host of other social problems that are happening – These platforms are implicated in the spread of disinformation, spreading disinformation about climate change, about uh, vaccinations, all kinds of things that have, again, real world consequences for people. And these are the kinds of things that we need. We need serious money to research. We need support. Uh, Those of us who do this kind of work, I'll tell you, there's only a handful of people. The majority of people who study tech are um, enamored with it. They're in love with it. They want to talk about, you know, um, how amazing um, the possibility of these predictive analytics are. And, you know, I think about the things. I've got an eight-year-old son and I look at all the kind of new systems that are coming on board in K-12 through education, Mm -hmm. right, where they're tracking kids, tracking every little dimension of how they learn. And a lot of these technologies... You know the the uh, foregone conclusion that we can see is that these will be tracking systems that tell us, let's see, who's worthy to go to college mm-hmm. or not, who who has the capacity to do certain types of jobs. Right, it's like over determining what the future will right. be it's and the, what your future will it's be. It's the job
2: placement test on steroids. Uh, Big it's time. the job placement test being run by Mark Zuckerberg, where now there's an algorithm that you don't have access to that's designed by someone in Silicon Valley and sold to your school district that's been tracking you for your entire school career. That's terrifying. It is terrifying. I mean, listen, all
1: of us Gen Xers would seriously be unemployed if anyone were tracking us through the 80s and <laughs> 90s. I'm 100% sure
2: about I that. mean, talk about the SAT which is already an incredibly flawed metric and, you know, but it, it had that promise of, well, here's a number, right? You're looking at all of these, what, who, who's the real audience of the SAT, right? It's the admissions people who are looking at 10,000 applicants and they get a number they can look at. And if they want to, they can just filter by the number. Yes. Right? To
1: screen out, not to yeah. screen in. I mean, it's so interesting. Cause here I, okay. I teach at UCLA. So yeah. I have all of the uh, valedictorians, of the United States, for the most part, right, who are applying. UCLA has the largest uh, uh, freshman kind of um, applicant pool in the United States. I think we get about 100,000 first year applications, wow. okay, for freshman year. Yeah. So you know we're not taking, we're taking, you know, a handful.
2: Yeah. Do, do right. you know what how big the freshman class I is? I think
1: it's like between four and six thousand. Okay. It's not wow. big. That's
2: extremely selective for a public extremely university. Extremely
1: selective. Yeah. UCLA is now the number one public research university in the rankings. Wow. We beat Berkeley, and everyone who went to Cal right now hates my guts that I had to say it, but <laughs> it's it's real. It happened. It's just live with it. All right. So here we are, we're at UCLA. When you look at the history of admissions, and I'm, I love that you brought this up because, you know, in the old days, people got applied and, and went to college. This is before we had even the UC system. It's like this is from your part of the world on the East Coast, right? In the Ivy League schools, <laughs> right, where I grew up. Right. They, um, you know, it's like the sons and daughters, um, mostly the sons of the elite. Yeah. That's who got to go to college. Right. Then, you know, the country was growing and more and more people were interested in higher education. And so you started to see these new kinds of ways of filtering out and filtering in. So you have the rise of things like the letter of recommendation. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know the history of the letter of recommendation was really about um, seeing what network you were in. Mm -hmm. What was your social network and did you have the right people quote, quote fingers, right. writing for you. This was actually a discriminatory practice to keep Jewish people out of the university. Oh, wow. If you look at the history, that was one of the reasons because too many Jewish people or applying to universities and universities want to figure out how to so they give right. the, the letter of recommendation okay so then fast but, forward but if
2: someone from the someone who's got a season subscription to the metropolitan opera writes you a letter of recommendation then you're solid in society gold. right solid gold yeah.
1: exactly uh, so here you have or your congressman right or your state senator yeah. wrote for you you're you're in the mix all right so you fast forward to something like the admissions the SAT the ACT these kinds of tests again these become you know a, a belief that there's some type of metric that we can implement, and if you if you don't score at the right level, you're out.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: of course, if you look, I mean, look, I'm from the '80s, and I remember the like big pushback on the SATs in the '80s. It was about the way in which they were racially biased. Yeah, right. There's just certain words that don't get used in some households in America. In and fact some schools. Yeah, in some schools, in some cultures, in some communities. I was on a phone call last night with a couple of other professors and, and one of them said, yeah, you know, we just gotta take it bird by bird. And I started laughing. And then you know, my 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 <laughs> colleague was like, yeah, bird by bird, you know, that's it. I've never and I was heard like, what the fuck before? is bird by bird? You know what I'm saying? Like that's yeah. not even a phrase that I would ever yeah. roll up in my neighborhood yeah. or in my community or my family. That's not we that's not ours. Yeah. Okay. So you know, what if Bird by Bird is on the SAT? You see what I'm saying? It's like a yeah. framing of a certain swath of middle class, upper middle class, white
2: America. Yeah, the analogy test is entirely, yes, very much like that. And, so, and especially the – it's also dependent so much on the kind of education. That, the idea that it's some sort of IQ test is, is ludicrous because the – you know, there's this long essay portion. Or actually, I don't know how they do it now. When I took it, there was a long essay portion, yes. etc. It was a very, and also I was a bad student. I just tested well. I, you know, I did, I did good on it, but I'm like, I was good at video games and it helped me on the SAT because I was like good at solving puzzles. It was like, it's such a weird thing right. that's so specific, right? Yes. Um, and has so many clear societal, cultural uh, factors in it that like result in bias against some population. Versus others, exactly. uh, and that's we thought about covering that on my show. Adam ruins everything, and decided not to because we we're like everybody knows this already. <laughs> like this is like too it's, well covered. Well, now we here. We've done it. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, fine. But,
1: you know, the logics are really similar, and I think it's a good metaphor. You know, like to to frame up what predictive analytics right. will be like. And are like right now. So you know the way predictive analytics, for example, in predictive policing work right here in LA and other cities, and LA is a big uh, test market for predictive mm-hmm. policing. Is um, which is know, what an
2: algorithm that's going to tell the police, hey, a it's like Minority Report, hey, a crime's going to be committed at Third and, and Main.
1: That's exactly right. Wow. Okay, so what do they do? They take all of the historical um, police data for the city. And they look to see, like, where have the majority of arrests taken place in L.A.? And they use that as the baseline data is they, that they put into the algorithm to predict where future crime will happen. Mm-hmm. So let's say you live in a neighborhood that's over-policed historically— yeah. It's hard to imagine. You know already who that is. It's the African Americans, Latinos, the poor people. So police have been basically occupying your neighborhoods for 50 years yeah. plus, right? Let's we could go back to the Origin story of policing come emanating out of slave catching. Oh yeah! But I feel like nobody's really ready for that kind of truth. But
2: <laughs> I'm just gonna look. I think we can all agree the LAPD has a racist history. Okay, we also, All right. Rodney King. It's a matter you said of it. it's true. We don't need to prove this to us today, Sophia. Okay, all we right. know it. We, so we, you so know. that's the baseline. All right. So that's yeah. our
1: baseline. So if you take that data and you make that your baseline for then figuring out where will future crime happen, well, guess what? It's gonna happen in all the places that you've over arrested people in the past i mean this is like just predicting the past
2: directly into the future garbage in garbage out racism in racism out. it's like computer science 101 shit
1: i know and yet weirdly people think that you know the data in quotey fingers is neutral yeah that it's unbiased And even now you have people who are willing, I mean, you know, a lot of people don't want to use the words I use. I talk about these algorithms being oppressive, Mm -hmm. that they foment and bolster oppression You know, some people want to deal with like oppression light. So they want to say things like, well, the data is biased, but we can unbias the data. That's like saying we can unbias history. I mean, history has happened. And that is the data. The data is what has happened. So you can't unbias that unless Mm -hmm. you want to redo. You want a, a redo of the last 350 years. So what we have to talk about is like, what is this society that we want? How do we optimize toward that? And, you know, that's where you get into a lot of competing values, because there are some people in Silicon Valley who want to colonize Mars and just get out. You know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, that's one set of weird values. Yeah. you know, there are other people who believe strongly in this so called meritocracy, right? Because they yeah. got the good SAT scores. Mm-hmm. And they went to the elite colleges and universities and they think they actually just earned their way in,
2: right? <laughs> On their own merit. I don't understand Because I got good SAT scores and I went to an elite college. And, and here because you of that are, experience, now you have to sit with me, so you know you're not you bombed <laughs> you <won't>. out. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because that experience I know is bullshit. Like I'm not I don't I know I didn't work particularly hard. I was like an okay student, you know, I'm very lucky to have the opportunities that I did. Right. And I, and you know, there's like, I'll give myself credit where credit's due, but I'm not sitting around going like, you know, I saw a dude in, uh, uh, a, I used to work at a tech company. Um, college room used to be part of a tech company. And I remember walking through the parking lot and seeing a guy had like a, it was like a Maserati or like a fancy car like that. Um, and, uh, there's a very, uh, there was a tech company that was really popping on another floor of the building. I won't say which one. Uh, no, I will. It was Tinder. And uh, <laughs> so Tinder shared the building. Definitely popping. And there was a guy, this was like 2015 or something. The Tinder was huge. And there was a, there was a car in the parking lot. Don't know who's, but the license plate was self-made S L F M A D E. And I was just like, no you're fucking not dude like I know everyone who works for that company you know I know I know where what advantages you guys started with is the same ones that I started with you know that's why we're all in this building together yeah, right um, that's right and, and, and I, I don't I have trouble understanding that that mentality like give yourself credit where credit is too absolutely you know like I, I'm like alright the guy who also started with my advantages I did a little better than him Uh, cool I'll, I'll give myself credit for like I'll work in that guy by 10% you know or whatever but you know the idea of, of, you know, every every single thing I have is from the sweat of my brow is so transparently not true. This is off topic, but it was just a little, a little rant from me.
1: No, I love it. I mean, I feel like the, actually the license plate should say hooked up. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> um, yeah. Not just because it's tender, but also, <laughs> um, I mean, this is so real because the, you know, this the alleged meritocracy and the, the fraternity, quite frankly, that is Silicon Valley, where, you know, they hire from the same top five engineering schools in the country and they hook up all their friends mm-hmm. and um, they use phrases like culture fit. Yeah. Right. As a justification for who's in and who's out. Yeah. Um, you know, culture fit means, uh, you know, you're one of the homies. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what that means. It's like I could kick it with you all day, all week. Yeah. I, well, I could have fun with you. Hey, let's you know, uh, you're not
2: going to have we, fun we with. Have, we have a you? beer in the afternoon. And yeah. We'll play Smash Brothers and, and cool. et cetera. And we're, we're ch- it seems yeah. like a, I can hang. Oh, we we're simpatico. Yeah. I, I like you. We hit it off in the interview. Good. Yeah. You're not
1: some lady who has to go breastfeed. <laughs> you know, you're not
2: like, remi- Man, she's you know, remind uptight. me of my mom. She's not playing Smash Brothers. She's always spending her time in that weird room. Yeah, what is she doing? What is she holding? What, we don't even know what her mane is. Like, <laughs> is she a Kirby mane or what? We don't know. She's always in that room. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry. You You know I have bronchitis and that when I start laughing, then I get a bronchitis (laughs) cough. Listen, this is what I'm saying. This is one of the reasons why you don't see diversity in Silicon Valley. You don't see old people. I I dare you to to, to show me a person in Silicon Valley in a major tech company who's like uh, 50 pounds or more overweight.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: it's like you got to be a marathon runner or something. I don't know. When I go, I mean, I feel like I'm like a normal sized woman, whatever that is. I'm like mm-hmm. average woman. And I go and I'm like, I would be here for a week and and probably start trying to cultivate anorexia. Like, I don't mm-hmm. even know because there's yeah. like a certain profile. Um, maybe you have to live on Soylent. I don't know. Like, there's a, there's a whole thing yeah. about a, a way of being in the world that's like, Hyper optimized yeah. in every way. And, you know, that optimization is for young people. It's for young white and Asian people. It is for men. It is for people who are really fit. Um, so, you know, it is people who people who went to good schools mm-hmm. in quotey fingers, whatever that means. So, you know, if that's what we're optimizing for because we think that those are the most valuable people in our society, and that they, that's the technocracy who should um make the decisions for all the rest of us, it's a really narrow window. and yeah. i'm
2: I'm those aren't bad, those aren't necessarily bad values in themselves to like, you know, meditate and and exercise a lot if those are things that you want to do. I do some of those things, yeah, but it's cool those, that you can't those are judge values the rest that not everyone, yeah,
1: that's exactly. right. That's my worry is that you know, it's like that there's a narrow framework of what is quote-unquote good in the world and that, that that framework doesn't allow for the breadth of our humanity. And that yeah. is the thing that I think we have we miss because I'll tell you what, I went to a state school. I came from a working poor family. You know, I didn't get tracked into top schools. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I worked uh, really hard to eventually go to uh, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign when I was in my 40s, and wow. I got a PhD. And now I get to work at an amazing place like UCLA with some of the most brilliant people in the world and some, you know, that are cool. They're okay. And, um, you know, I don't... Uh, I I know that it was going, for example, to a place like Illinois that gave me... I went to the top-ranked place in my field yeah. in information science, And that's how I got a job at a place like UCLA. So I'm super clear. I'm also a black woman. So I really understand like uh, where I kind of got disregarded as a Mm -hmm. young person Mm -hmm. and nobody saw Mm -hmm. a potential or a possibility in me to be smart, to be a contributor. I remember my high school counselor saying the best you'll ever do is trade school or the military. College is not for you. And wow. I was a person who was dying to be an intellectual and dying to be a researcher. And, and I was so yeah. curious, just had a curious spirit. Um, so, you know, f- for a person like me, I know it's not self-made. Yeah. I know somebody gave me gave me an opportunity and I yeah. got a chance to be my best self. And And that's, you can't optimize for that, right? I was already optimized out of... The opportunity or the possibility as a young person. So, this is the part that's so interesting to me when we think about predictive analytics is like, is there space to just, you know, make mistakes? What about that one year that you bottom out because, you know, your grandma dies or your parents die or you got to move or you get evicted or whatever? And now you've destroyed your own personal algorithm for success.
2: And it neglects the idea that. You know, you're saying that, yeah, you worked hard and you give yourself credit for that, but also you're aware of the advantage and the chance that you were given and the help that someone else gave you.
1: For sure. That
2: that maybe a lot of folks in Silicon Valley are not as aware of. Um, And if you're doing an algorithm, because we were talking about the SAT, the specter of, you know, the the hyper version of the SAT is you're being tracked by your school throughout your entire life. And then you don't even need to take a test, right? They just have a big database and the database says, send these people to college and don't send these people. The end, and no one, no one even thinks about it. right? Right. And all it does is, evaluate those kids and say, do those kids deserve, right? Are they self-made? Did yes. they, did they put the work in themselves? Yeah. And it doesn't ask, well, who, who is going to benefit from, from getting an opportunity that they might not have otherwise had? You know, right. the the thing for me is like, I was not a good student. I was a B student, right? And I applied to a, um, a, a small liberal arts college. I went to Bard College. Um, and they didn't, take SAT scores and my GPA was not very good. Right. I got rejected from every other like sort of liberal arts school I applied to, but like I wrote a good essay, you know, and they were like, they just had this approach. It was, you know, it was 15 years ago. So they had a little more leeway to do it, but no, actually it was 20 years ago. Um, uh, they had less applicants then, but they looked at the, they were like, Oh, w- we like this actual person. You know what I mean? There's yes. something in this actual person that we are going to invest into. And because they invested in me, like my life flowered after I went to college, right. like, like, like intellectually and emotionally. And I was, just, I just became a different person. Um, and I had other fr- I had friends in high school who didn't have that chance, you know, and, um, and didn't have that same experience. And I, and I was really aware that the, that it, uh, something had been given to me that hadn't been given to them. Um, and, uh, and that was just getting into the school, like we were also able to afford it, (laughs) you know, so, um, you know, that's just my own experience with, uh, you know, advantage and disadvantage, et cetera, when I'm already a person who's very lucky in every other aspect of my life. Imagine that for a kid who has, doesn't have that long list of advantages I already had. Um, and
1: listen, let me just say, I love that you brought up the point about we could afford it because if we think that the predictive analytics of the future, aren't going to look at the feasibility, of your, uh, of, right. of your ability to pay for college or pay for the training, right, or the, mm-hmm. the professional skill building, um, then, you know, we're crazy because colleges and universities want to admit people who are going to finish. Yeah, They're not interested in bringing in people who drop out. They're really deeply invested in people yeah. finishing. And part of that is financial. So, you know, I think, um, you know, about like, my son and and the way in which you know the uh, financial picture of my husband and I are going to play a role, and whether he looks like a a good quotey finger candidate mm-hmm. for an opportunity. So it's like all of these factors. I mean, if they had looked at my own my parents' uh, financial background, they would be like, I feel like this is a person who has about $5 and we should definitely not let her in. And I was hustling all the time to get through Fresno state. I mean, bartending, you know, working retail. Yeah. I worked at the mall. I did like everything to be able to pay my tuition so I could go to school. Yeah. And um, that wouldn't have really looked right in the algorithm. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? I couldn't have, I couldn't have put my hustle into that analytic, yeah. and you know, I think a lot of people are like that. So the whole point of the critique is to say we need more human agency, more human decision making, not kind of turning it over to some type of static predictive uh, analytic that uses some type of baseline that probably isn't your baseline, right? right? Um, some type of standard that that just. Uh, decides, and then we stand back and say, like, "Oh, well, you know, the the algorithm said." Yeah, and it's like the Apple card, you know, that just happened. It was <laughs> in the news like a few weeks ago, where. Um, the guy who's the, the inventor of Ruby on rails, um, which is a programming Mm -hmm. language got the new Apple card and he got 20 times the credit limit of his wife, (laughs) even though his wife had better credit and they like share in all their financials Yeah, because, you know, and I thought somebody on NPR interviewed me about that. And she's like, you know, why do you think that is? And I was like, well, you know, one generation ago, my mom's generation, she couldn't open a banking account without her husband or her father signing on it. So mm-hmm. the baseline of women's financial data yeah. is actually real thin over time. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Their their credit and their finances always tied to men being the primary kind of like financial resource. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, of course, if that data is feeding an algorithm – that the banking industry is using, it's going to give the men 20 times the credit. I mean, this is not even rocket science to me when we try to unpack what we think is happening. And the fact that the algorithms, of course, are all black boxed and all we can do is try to deduce from all the evidence that's mounting in the world, you know, makes it even tougher.
2: Well, we got to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk about more specifically, we've been talking about these broader issues of of inequity in tech and and the world, frankly. You have to describe (laughs) discrimination in the world before we even get to it in algorithms, but I want to get into more of the algorithm specifically when we come right back with more Sophia Noble. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months. Then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeletemecom slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeletemecom slash Adam. Okay, we're back with Sophia Noble. So... I want to talk about some specific specific examples about technological or algorithmic systems exhibiting discrimination in this way. Um so for instance search engines you use that example of of black girls. I my understanding is Google has sort of like updated their algorithm in the years since and like you don't see exactly that problem anymore. Although I tried it with DuckDuckGo and I did see I I you know there's porn on in the first 10, you know. Yep. DuckDuckGo is a simpler search engine that I very much like cuz it doesn't track you but you know it's like got a different algorithm. Yes. Um, so, are there are there other examples that people can go try themselves today in Google to see what you're talking about?
1: Well, sure. I mean, I think that uh, one thing people can do, especially as we start to go into this uh, election season, mm-hmm. is to pay close attention to the kind of results that are showing up on the first page. Uh, you know, the week following the 2016 presidential election. When you did a search on final election results uh, in Google, the very first hit took you to a disinformation site that said Donald Trump had won the popular vote. Wow. Which is not an alternate fact. It's not a fact, (laughs) right? That's just straight up disinformation. So one of the things I think people are going to really need to pay attention to is what type of content is getting optimized to the first page, Mm -hmm. really making sure they're looking at those URLs, um, seeing uh, if these are, you know, credible news institutions and and, uh, 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 kind of fact-based organizations, Mm Rather than, uh, you know, people's blogs or these kind of disinformation news sites, that, um, that'll that be a really powerful place that people should be watching as they're searching yeah. on different candidates, especially uh, people who are challenging uh, the incumbent, Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I think that we'll see a lot of disinformation that's going to be flourishing once the Democrats uh, net out on their candidate. Um, so that's that's a thing. Um, certainly I think, um, people are still, you know, people send me searches all the time that they're looking at. So for example, um, People uh in the book I talk about what it means to look on various kinds of concepts. So concepts like beauty or beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I uh those will often give you like a certain type of beauty standard mm-hmm. uh, that comes back. You do an um, image search for in it. The image searches. Yeah. Image searches are really powerful because they tell you a lot about how the culture is defining mm-hmm. ideas. Um, you know, so you can look up ocu- various occupations. I think that's always powerful. You know, when you look at professors, for example, you're not going to see women who look right. like me.
2: But but l- let me ask you this. If, okay, so if the argument is, as we've laid out, that, hey- there we've got racism in society. Society builds the algorithms, right? The algorithms are built by these systems where all right you know the advantaged folks who um you know maybe have that blind spot are building the algorithm, they build it right in, you know, and then we see it in our lives, right? Um, or hey, yeah, there's, you know, we've got uh racists on Twitter, right? Um, well, what what about when someone says, um, well, hey, yeah, of course there's racist on Twitter. There's racist in the real world. You know, of course there's uh, like the the thing that you're talking about, if you do a Google image search for professor and you see a bunch of white guys in tweed jackets, right? Well, that didn't, Google didn't create that, right? Google image search didn't create that. So why the focus on uh, these companies and their products rather than, hey, why don't we go like root out the racists? Why don't we go change those ideas and then the search engine will change as well? Why don't we, you know get into it with the racists on Twitter and like shout them down or or, you know what I mean? (laughs) I
1: know what you mean. I mean, here's the thing. If the public looked at something like a search engine and Google search and its products like, uh, hey, this is just reflecting the biases of society or we know this is an advertising platform. So people are going to, you know, get what's optimized for. That would be one thing. But what the research shows is that people relate to search engines like they are credible, vetted, and reflective of the so-called truth. Mm -hmm. So that's actually really different than—it's a different kind of moral and ethical stance and standard that companies have to have if the public thinks of them as being vetted, credible, fair in their representation of ideas and information and knowledge. But unfortunately, that's not what they are. So I guess, you know, some of us think that part of the way that we do our work is to help the public understand what the platforms are rather than saying that the the platforms are just a reflection of society. Mm. I got to tell you, you know, I travel all over the world giving talks around my book and my research. And uh, uh, I don't think that society. Um, and the majority of people hold with the, such intensity the kind of like gross stereotypes mm-hmm. that get represented in some of these platforms. Right. Do you know? I True. mean, I think people are more nuanced. And um, <clears throat> I think there's yeah. something to be said about um, thinking of Google and other companies as like the public good mm-hmm. or serving the public interest rather than thinking about them as what they are, kind of multinational, uh, you know, publicly traded companies yeah. that have a, whose first priority is to um, raise the stock value and pay dividends <laughs> to their shareholders. Yeah, That's actually their first priority. Yeah. So one of the things that I think, you know, could be. They're, they're not Wikipedia. Powerful.
2: Wikipedia is at least, I'm sure Wikipedia has got its own problems. You know, right? it does. That's a different show. Of course but, it does. But at least at the very least, it's a nonprofit. Correct. <laughs> with volunteers, you know. We,
1: and we know that about Wikipedia. Yeah. Right? We know that it's like kind of subjective. We know that it's crowdsourcing from a lot of different people. It still has gatekeepers who are mostly men and kind yeah. of mostly white. But it
2: also has articles about its own systemic biases right there on the, you go click about problems on Wikipedia and you'll That's go right. see it.
1: That's right. That kind of transparency doesn't exist in something like a search engine. Yeah. The search engine, even the the design of it, you know, I just try to explain to my students the fact that you have a rank order from one to millions mm-hmm. in the cultural context of the West. I mean, nobody puts a foamy finger up at a game that's like, we're number 1,395,000. Yeah. Know, I mean, we're number one. So the idea that in a rank order, one through 10 are the top, yeah. And should be trusted compared to the rest. That uh, that itself is a kind of logic.
2: It seems definitive.
1: It's definitive.
2: I, I was talking to – when I was talking to our researcher, Sam, before we were preparing for this interview, I compared it to like um, – uh, you know, Pitchfork, the 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 music review website, and they give all the albums, they add a decimal point. They're like, we give it a 7.6, right? And like at the end of the day, look, if you get a seven on Pitchfork, it's a good album. If you get an eight, it's a great album. In the opinion of the site, if you get anything lower than seven, it's a shitty album. That's, that's how you actually read Pitchfork reviews. But they all say like- 7.9. Like, it's got this like point in there. It's like, what's the point of that? What is the purpose of it? To like communicate, oh, this is exact. Like, this is precise. Mm. We've added a decimal point. So you should really believe it because we're the fucking experts, you know? Yeah. And. Uh, it's not and a regular seven. Yeah, it's not a regular seven. Oh, yeah, we give it a seven. It's not like a B, right? A B, uh, which Entertainment Weekly uses, that's like, oh, I give it a B. I liked it. It's good. It's my opinion. Seven is like definitive, right? And that was like the Whole and that like gate that literally that gave Pitchfork a lot of power. Like people started to take the the rankings really seriously in music to like an absurd degree where they like destroyed careers and stuff like that because yeah. of like the number that they were giving people. Yeah. Um. And so that pledge of accuracy, or I talked in the intro about how a Fitbit will tell you that you ran three point one two miles, right? And that makes it seem exact, unless even, you're
1: like fist pumping. Yeah. You know exactly. What I mean? Because that really adds steps. Or just if you if you're run through. A
2: Fitbit. Or if you run through a tunnel and, and – well, that's that's for – if you're using a GPS watch, not all Fitbits are GPS, but – right? Like depending on what – yeah, what part of your body you put it on, etc. But that decimal point gives the illusion of exactness and it makes you believe. Well, it must be – hey, it's to the second decimal yeah. point.
1: Yeah, it's science, right? Yeah. I mean this is the problem is the it's one, kind it of like the same thing. junk science, pseudoscience, this type of um, uh, trust – in that. And I think it also confuses and muddies the water um, around uh, what truth and facts are. And that's the thing that really worries me about and why I study search engines in particular is because they work like an arbiter of truth. You know, Mm -hmm. I come out of a field of library and information science. Okay. That's what my PhD is in. And in the library science world, we're really very, very clear that the physical library can only hold so much mm-hmm. in a collection. We're clear about the limits. We know that there's a lot of subjectivity that goes into what is kept mm-hmm. and what isn't kept. Mm-hmm. And over time, like thousands of years, we have a whole training and a professional code of ethics that we teach librarians about um, things like fair fair representation, Um when we have something like a book like the Pernkopf Atlas, I don't know if you know about this, but the mm-hmm. Pernkopf Atlas used to be considered uh, at the, you know, in, in the last century um, uh, the definitive kind of illustrated medical book of the human body, right. It had these beautiful drawings of the human body and the musculature and, and people in med school would use this because it was their best way of understanding the human body. And then we came to understand that the Pernkoff Atlas was illustrated by um, looking at the corpses of people who had been murdered during the Holocaust. Okay? (laughs) So we can take a book like that and we can put it in the history of the Holocaust at the same time that we can put it in the medical Mm
0: -hmm. illustrated
1: literature and we have a subjective way of understanding it in a more complex and robust way. You cannot do that in a search engine. Yeah. So you see what I'm saying? So this is the the part of the challenge. Um, you know, this the whole idea of hyperlinking and pointing to sites. This is the, like the the origin story of search engine was really about. Um, if a lot of people point to your page and link to your page, it's credible and it goes up in the rankings, mm-hmm. right? It becomes more visible. That was like the early origin story. Yeah, yeah. Search rank. It,
2: it was a good algorithm. Yeah. still still, I mean. I yeah. mean, but here's the thing. That
1: was borrowed directly from library citation practices where in <laughs> academia, right. for example, if if you cite to me, to my work, a bunch of times, um, that's signaling that my work is credible, but see what we know is that you might be citing my work and saying like that work is trash.
2: Yeah. Okay. You might actually (laughs) this famously bad study by Sophia Noble. Terrible. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, okay. So, so we know exactly that the, that the citation alone is not sufficient. The pointing to the so-called science of the count Right. How many times is not enough because it might be pointing to terrible things. Yeah. Again, we don't have that kind of nuance and understanding in a search engine, but those are the logics. Right. So guess what? People spent there are huge farms, information farms that are optimizing content all over the world. Uh, To spread misinformation Mm -hmm. and disinformation by hyperlinking a zillion sites, right, to push content. Search engine optimization. That's what it is. And it's one of the reasons why something like the porn industry that has more money than any industry, right, um, is able to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of micro porn sites that get really specific and really, really niche. And they're Mm -hmm. all interconnected and hooked up with each other. And that helps push the content and people spend their lives and get paid trying to figure out how to game the algorithms Mm -hmm. and push that content up to the top. And so this is the kind of thing that um, when the public is using these and they don't understand that that's what's happening. And let me tell you, you know, who's got a lot of technical skill in spreading disinformation and optimizing content are white supremacists and white nationalists. Whoa, you gotta look at the work of people like Jesse Daniels at CUNY and Joan Donovan at Harvard. When when you look at their work, you you will not sleep at night. When you think <laughs> about the technical skill yeah. that white supremacists who are organized to specifically spread disinformation and propaganda against people of color <clears throat> and Jewish people, it's frightening. So if you don't know these things are happening, you're just like, it's computer code, it's math and it's science.
2: And you're not. And the problem is that the design of something like Google or any of these sites specifically like desurfaces that, like hides that. Stuff that's happening under the surface and makes it look super clinical and super exact. It makes it look like that, like that Fitbit readout or just a piece of technical equipment that feels extremely neutral when it's hiding all of this human manipulation underneath. Um,
1: Yeah, that white opaque screen. nothing to see here. Let yeah, some cute art, a little doodle.
2: Yeah, Google know. at the bottom. You never look at that 13th open. You're like, it's there. So they really must have done their, their homework.
1: They crawled it. And you know, Google only indexes about half of the internet anyway. Really? Yeah. So, wow. you know, the question is like, what is in the other half? And, of course, that's where sex trafficking and um, sexual child sexual exploitation content and, you know, the dark web, like some of the worst, worst. And we see that stuff bleed through. Sometimes it gets optimized in, especially into like platforms like YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is, of course, where the work of one of your previous guests, Sarah Roberts, Mm -hmm. is so important. Right. The content moderators who are letting it in or not seeing it, not catching it, not knowing what it is. And, you know, and we see the glimpses of that come through.
2: Let's talk about some other uh, uh, bits of tech in the time that we have left. Uh, what about like facial recognition algorithms? I understand. It's a no. It's a no? It's a no-go.
1: My, my <laughs> You son, don't want to talk about them? I mean, we can talk about it. I, I'll tell you, you know, um, the thing that's really interesting, there was just, I just signed on to a, a, A letter that went to, um, I think it was addressed to the New York um, State Attorney General, because uh, landlords in New York uh, of low-income housing, uh, there was one case in particular, was interested in in installing facial recognition uh, to allow people into the building, which Mm -hmm. means if you're low-income and you live in this building— you have to use the facial recognition software to get in now, first of all, probably if you're low income, you might be a person of color mm-hmm. because of historical discrimination, yeah, um and we know from the work of people like Joy Buwamini at the MIT Media Lab that uh, these facial recognition software are ha, are have low efficacy for people of color, especially women of color. Mm-hmm. and of course, you know women of color are and children are the most likely to live in poverty or be low income in the United States, yeah. And so here you have faulty technology that doesn't read women of color faces, especially Black women's faces, very well, and that becomes the criteria by which you can get into your apartment, yeah. um, and the and your friends. Yeah. And your family. You're going to have
2: visitors. And,
1: and- the, your coworker from work. Now they've got to be programmed into the, the database so that the door can read them. And if it doesn't, they can't come over. They can't get in. Yeah. So
2: and, this- that, and it might not read their faces effectively. That's right. I, I remember reading a, a, an account by, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who it is because I read it a few years ago. But it was uh, by a programmer who worked, I think, for a startup that was designing early face recognition technology and it was the, their tech demo did basically what Snapchat does now, you know, where it like puts, it puts a funny hat on you or whatever, you know, on the screen, you're, you're looking at it and showing you your face with, with an alteration. And they did a demo in like Times Square or somewhere big like that, where people could come like try it out. And it was like their first big opening. They're like, Oh, we're so excited for people to try our tech. And then um, a black man walks in front of and like tries to do it and it just doesn't work. It's it <laughs> just work. like, it doesn't pop on his head and the guy and the guy writing the piece was like my like his heart fell into his stomach cause he suddenly realized in that moment that there were no black employees at the company. And so, and thus no black, no black test because they were testing it on testers. their own faces exactly as they had no black testers. And so they had just forgotten to, uh, you know, uh, make sure it worked on black faces. And then the guy testing it was like, Oh, I guess it doesn't work. I don't know. Like who wandered off, like did, didn't feel like he was <laughs> actually the recipient of racism in that moment. But, um you know it was just like this cautionary tale and that always stuck with me when i saw you know in the years since just article after article so about about this facial recognition feature does right. not work or work. or or just works even if it works 10% less well, right, on, yeah. on certain types of faces. When that's you getting into your apartment or or something else important like that, or you being scanned by a law enforcement camera that is looking for a suspect of some kind, right? And like a
1: mismatch, which you saw the ACLU did that study on uh, the Congressional Black Caucus members, and it ran mm, all of the... This. Okay, so a few years ago, maybe, I don't know, a year and a half ago, the ACLU did a study and... With some researchers and they found they ran the Congressional Black Caucus um, members, their headshots, their their congressional headshots through um, a database that would do like facial like recognition matching. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was like a huge percentage of them. It identified and flagged as criminals that were in a yeah. criminal database. Right. Which, is, of course, is not true because yeah. you can't be in a criminal database and be a a a senator or a congress (laughs) member. I mean, so, okay. So the fact that this uh, software is so crude and I'm telling you, if you talk to people who do like um, machine learning and are working uh, on these technologies, they'll tell you that the, the tech is so crude right now. It's still trying to figure out like, is this table like that table? Are these table right? Is this cat like that cat? Is it a cat? So the, to think that the level of precision down to our human faces, right? And, of course, faces change over time. Um, they age. Yeah. They get different. Um Uh, And then again, that that technology serves as some type of baseline for access. I mean, that's the question is like, are these things going to be used as like, you know, arbiters or, you know, pathways? And
2: the thing is, they already are, you know, like in uh, I saw a, you know, article a month or two ago and tweeted out about, you know, a here is a uh, camera that is being sold in China to the government. there, specifically being advertised that it can tell who is a Uyghur, (laughs) you know, like this is one of the this is. like. Like being done currently uh, around the world, um, and uh, it's not hard to believe that we'll see it in the United States. Um, if you if you believe that it's impossible for you know the United States to deploy the same kind of technology that that is being deployed there, it's I I think you're naive. Um, and the thing is. Regardless of how crude it is, you're right that so much technology like this is actually cruder than we think, and we fill in the blanks because we want it to work, right? So I always use the example of Waze. When people use the, the driving app Waze, it says it gives you the shortest route. I used to try to use it when I was still driving around L.A., and I ride in the car with people, and I would do it, and I'm like, this is not fucking faster, It's not faster. What it does is it tells you that it's faster and it gives you a route that allows you to believe, well, I'm not on the main street. I'm making crazy rights and lefts. So therefore it must be faster. And if you are therefore the type of person who is anxious, if you think there might be a faster route, you're on the freeway and you're like, there's gotta be a faster way. I wanna know I'm going the faster way. I'm freaking out here, right? I'm not that kind of driver. I just, you know, when I was driving, I would just sit and be like, I'll be a little late. It's fine. I don't wanna stress out. But some people, Get anxious, right? And so, Waze is an app that tells you you're on the fastest route, and it relieves that anxiety, whether or not it is the fastest route. That in my that in my view is what Waze is actually giving you, right? Yeah. Um, And so, a law enforcement will buy a camera that says, "Hey, we can detect criminals," whether or not it can detect criminals, because they really want a camera that can detect criminals. Or, you know, take another example talked about in the intro, self-driving cars. People really want a self-driving car and they will buy one even though it's not really self-driving. And if you and they will trust it to the point where they die because they really want to believe in this thing. Or existing. kill a black
1: person that doesn't recognize that a black person is a pedestrian walking in front of the car because right. the sensors don't pick up their skin.
2: Absolutely. Right. Well, car. Uh, it's just.
1: Oh, I oh, mean, blah, 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 I know blah, 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 there's blah, there's blah, too blah. many shows. Too yeah. Many shows to, to we've talk talked about, about
2: that days. case on this show before, but yeah the, the the fundamental thing of getting back to what I talked about in the intro and what we've discussed here is that the real the biggest issue here, I, I don't think that we're gonna eliminate. Racism from technology or from society tomorrow, right? I don't think your argument is like, "Hey, Google should eliminate all racism from everything it does uh, tomorrow." Right? It's.
1: I mean, that would be great if it that did, would be great. But, uh, that's but, not going to solve the systemic problems of our society. Yeah, but I do think they, the whole sector, has a a, a responsibility to not foment the spread of mis and disinformation, which includes you know, graphic and gross stereotypes about people who are already marginalized, who are already, right? Because what that does, I mean, you know, in places like Germany and France, one of the reasons why you can't traffic in, like, anti-Semitism, for example, in a search engine, you cannot, you cannot, no Nazi paraphernalia, no Mm -hmm. anti-Jewish kind of content. And they spend a lot of money screening that kind of content out. So if you think it can't be done, look at the cases of Germany and France. One of the reasons why is because, In Germany and France, they still have living memory of the role that propaganda played in Mm -hmm. bringing about the Holocaust. They actually know there's a relationship between propaganda and disinformation against vulnerable people or against minoritized communities and the desensitization that would lead to um, uh, mass genocide. So we have we have. Not reconciled the role that disinformation and propaganda against minoritized communities has played in our own holocausts in this country, against American Indians, against African-Americans, against a lot of people, indigenous people. So I think we're going to have to um, at some point reconcile, like... Do we want this? Do we acknowledge that there is a role that this kind of misinformation plays in um grossly stereotyping and of course that having real world consequences and that's the reason to study it. That's yeah. the reason to talk about it.
2: And to uh diminish I think you're completely right and to diminish our trust in the systems, right? That like the big the issue again with all these systems is that we trust them. We tr- we have a belief that those Propagandal, you know, propagandistic (laughs) elements are not in them, or that they're not discriminatory, that they're neutral, that they're just math, right? Right. And that seems to me to be the first step is to take away that trust and to see these things as like, no, your Fitbit is not a magical, uh, (laughs) like a magical device that knows everything. It's a piece of plastic that was designed by some dumb programmers who wanted you to buy crap. Right. And so like, maybe it'll do an okay job. And if it helps you run good for you, but it's not, you know, it's not perfect. Right. And And Google is not an Oracle that is. Yeah.
1: That's right. Yeah. And also maybe your own health and well being isn't just about you. Specifically, and what you do. Right. Maybe your health is tied to the environment. Maybe it's tied to whether you have access to healthy and affordable food. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's also tied to whether you have health care or access to health care, affordable health care. But see, the Fitbit just lets us believe that it's because you didn't get enough steps in. That's why you're not healthy. <laughs> so, see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like you got to tie these things to bigger systems of the way that we live and organize yeah. our society. Um, but instead, It's like, well, it's on you. The reason why you're not healthy is because you did not get enough steps in today. And I think that is that hyper reductionist kind of way that these technologies orient us and acculturate us. It can be dangerous. And let
2: me tie that back to racism, because my big problem with the with the dialogue of racism that I was brought up with is that it's that individualized that it's all about me it's like well no all that means is was i meaner to a black person today than i was to a white person right well did i did i say did i say a racist word right did i do the one no i didn't problem solved okay. right that that's all i have to care about and that's not what it is, right? Like the more I learn, it, racism is redlining, right? Which is a system that was put in by our own government that affects people today, uh, that still exists to a large extent, that is collective, that's societal, that is doesn't, that, that exists whether or not you are racist or not t- today. Everyone could choose to not be consciously racist and that system will still exist. And that's what we're really talking about. Um, and I really thank you for coming on the show to, to talk to us about these You're issues. awesome. It's yeah. so,
1: it, it's just, I love being here and talking to you. I feel like you need to come over and we need to have drinks there.
2: <laughs> I don't drink, but I'll have a seltzer. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> I don't drink anymore either. Congratulate. Well, good for know, you. It's... We'll have some, uh, we'll have some nice flavored LaCroix. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks, Sophia. Well, thank you once again to Sophia Noble for coming on the show. I also want to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our engineer, Ryan Connor, our researcher, Sam Roudman, Andrew WK, for our theme song. And I want to thank you for listening. You can sign up for my mailing list or check out my tour dates at adamconover.net. You can follow me anywhere you want on social media at Adam Conover. Once again, I'll be at the Irvine Improv on January 30th. I hope you come out. And until then, we'll see you next time on Factually.